The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back. Uh, first, let me just say before I forget, um, I, we are uh, experiencing some rumbles of thunder here. Uh, I hope that nothing unexpected and untoward will happen, but uh, if there's suddenly some tragedy and I cut out in the middle, uh, you will you will know why. So um, anyway, I, it should be fine. Um, but uh, just wanted to mention it uh, in case anything unexpected happens. Um, so welcome back. Um, <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. Thanks, Mike. That's true. Mike uh, is in D.C., so he can be my advanced warning system there, um, since the storm is coming in from the west. So uh, yeah, very good. Very good. Um, Okay, so tonight we are moving on to the beginning of book two. And, you know, as we've been doing, I want to spend less time talking about sort of the main things. This is this will be the first time I will ever have taught the beginning of book two in which I don't spend much time talking about the Council of Elrond. Um, there are some things that we could, uh, you know, mention. Certainly there are things which bear on some of the conversations we have had about Tom Bombadil and Glorfindel and everything. Uh, if you have particular sort of questions or things that you guys would like to talk about about the Council of Elrond, I'd be willing to do that. Um, myself, I would rather talk about Sam and Bilbo and poetry. I do some poetry tonight. Are people in a, are people in a poetry mood? Because I have a lot of poetry prepared. Um, so, uh, so I hope we can do that. Um, anyway, so that's what I most especially want to focus on here tonight. Um, and I want to start with what I didn't get to last time, which is Sam. I want to talk about Sam. I refuse to miss, uh, to miss Sam and be looking at, at his role in the story, because I think that his, his role is, is a very interesting and a very important one. Um, so let's sort of start off by doing kind of glancing back over book one and think about Sam. We talked about Sam uh, back in chapter one and two when we were looking at the very beginning of the first class when we were looking at um, you know what I was calling the Hobbit on the street stuff looking at sort of the that kind of baseline of Hobbit culture and what we saw um, of that um, and we you know we had those those sort of obviously corresponding scenes of the gaffer and the the Miller uh, Sandyman um, in the in the inn, in the ivy bush, and then we had Ted Sandyman with Sam uh, in the Green Dragon there uh, in chapter two. Um, but we saw some obvious differences there, and at the time we were looking at it as one of the sort of clear examples of the impact of the new kind of Bilbo subculture, right? That Sam has been infected, has been influenced by this, and we can see some of the very the very profound differences between his viewpoint. Gaffer Gamgee's viewpoint that we saw in chapter one. Um, but I want to think about what Sam does. So go, so let's sort of brainstorm here for a minute. Right? And then the first thing we want to do is, is, is gather observations. I want to think about book one. Now, well, I mean, it's okay to talk about like the first three chapters that, that you know, we're discussing today too. So we, we can lump that in. Um, but I want to think about what roles does Sam play? What kinds, and not just like, his larger role in the story, but moments when Sam talks or Sam acts um, in you know in ways that are sort of like just him. Places that we hear from Sam, we sort of notice what Sam is doing. What, what and I, I want to be that kind of patterns in his contributions to the story and what we hear from him. So uh, tell me what you what you notice about Sam. What 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 are just so Sam moments from book one? 
that that you recall that really that really jump out at you. Um, okay, good. Sharon says uh, he strikes the first blow for the Shire. It was preemptive and with an apple, but it still counts. Good. That's 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 a that's a great example. That moment with Sam and Bill Fernie is a great example of the kind of moment that Sam gets. And you'll notice almost nobody else gets moments like that. That is these kind of sideline to the main plot. You almost never get like, and here's a random piece of conversation that Mary took part in with somebody else. Like we almost never get that. You know, we get we get Mary's contributions to the conversation when he's part of the main conversation or when he contributes directly to the action as when he sees the Black Riders in Bree. But we almost never get uh, like, and on the side, some conversation with Mary. But we get like that moment with Bill Fernie, um, you know, where he has that confrontation with Bill Fernie and he's in the with an apple. Um, now, just just thinking about there, what is the, what do we see there? What does that show us about Sam? What do we learn about Sam or see about Sam in that moment when he beams Bill Fernie with the apple on the way out of Bree? One thing, of course, I'll start with one thing. I would like to start with one thing while you guys are typing. Um, but because uh, I, I, I want to talk about this and we can come back. You guys have made some more observations. We'll talk about those and we'll, uh, um, so and I'll give you a chance to add some more ideas too. But I want to talk about this one because I love this example that Sharon gave. It's a classic Sam moment. Um, good. Timothy points to his, his high moral character. Yes, his high moral character as, ex, as expressed in several different ways, right? One is simply his uh, his compassion for the pony. I mean, I think that the relationship between Sam and Bill, uh, Bill the pony, of course, uh, is, is, a, is a really important thing. Again, another kind of thing you just don't get with other characters uh, in this story, in the Fellowship. Um, so uh, so that, what, you know, the, 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 con the obvious contrast, that is a moment of transition, right? It was certainly a moment of transition in Bill the Pony's life as he was transitioning from being Bill Fernie's pony to being Sam's pony, or rather Sam being his caretaker. Um, and, uh, uh, so, and so that contrast, the contrast between not just how Sam treats the pony, but Sam's whole attitude towards the pony um, is... Uh, is 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 very um, again that's very indicative of his character and that pointed contrast with Bill Fernie. Um, uh, good, good, more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dime says I always think that Sam has a low BS quotient, meaning he's very practical thinking and sees through the veils people put up. Um, uh, yes, yes, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. He he does. He cares for things. As Timothy says he cares for 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 plants and animals. It's true. Uh, of course, we will have more emphasis on his love for the trees and his love for uh, for for growing things later on. That's not been a huge emphasis in book one of the story, but but it is certainly there. Um, and you know, you can say the kind of one could even call it respect that he has for them. I mean, the thing that is most striking, I think, about his treatment of Bill the Pony is the way that he immediately begins sort of conversing with him and talking with him like an equal, right? You know, in chapter 3, when he's making his, when he's talking to Bill, um, when they're setting out from Rivendell, and he says, you oughtn't to have took up with us, Bill, right? Um, you know, Bill, my lad. You know, to taken out of context, you'd have no way of knowing he's talking to an animal, right? I mean, it sounds like he's talking to, uh, to another person. Um, good, good. Um, uh, yeah, good. And Sharon, I absolutely agree. Another thing that we can see um, 
Another thing that we can see in that moment, that is the beginning of Bill Fernie moment, is his readiness, as Sharon says, to take a stand and defend what he's committed to. The pony, Frodo, his companions, yes, absolutely. That kind of stalwart is an adjective for Sam, right? He is, uh, he is quick to stand up and he is slow to back down. Um, he, you know, even the, you know, we've seen that several times, right? Not, of course, here in his, uh, his opposition of, of the, his, his, clearly his outrage um, at, uh, at Bill Fernie and his taunt. But, um, but also, you know, we've seen him, we've seen him actually defend, defend Frodo. We've seen him, you know, express his obvious willingness to defend Frodo. Um, <clears throat> yes, yes. Even Pippin jokes about it, right? Like, you know, he would, he would, he would jump down a dragon's throat to save you if he didn't trip over his own feet. Um, but, uh, but so, yes, and as uh, good as uh, Sarah is recalling, and by the way, I love it when you remember quotes and you give me quotes. You know, I always say, uh, to sort of slip into, uh, into, into writing teacher for a minute, I always say when I'm in my writing classes, try to paraphrase as little as possible. When you can remember the exact language, that's always best. Um, because then you're really dealing with what the text is saying and not doing a translation in your head, which sometimes uh, gets inaccurate, and you end up shifting things in ways that you don't even think about or aren't even aware of. Um, yes, good. He's a stout fellow, uh, says Sarah. Um, that's how Strider describes him, and that is, I think, an important description for Sam. Um, good, good. Um, Okay, very good. Now, uh, one other, uh, shifting to some other Sam moments that you guys have, to, uh, several of you have mentioned, and very rightly, one of the, uh, one of the sort of recurring uh, Sam elements in the story so far has been his suspicion of Strider, his resistance. Um, he is the last one to trust Strider. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, that's, that, that's I, I agree, I think it's very important. Dave was pointing to that, uh, Mike was pointing to that, a couple others. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, Mike, I agree. Mike uh, um, points to when Strider says at the end, "With Sam's permission, we'll call that settled." Um, you know, and to some extent, of course, there's 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 like a hint, if not of mockery, at least of teasing in that comment, right? That he he sort of recognizes that Sam is the Sam is the one who has been his opponent, you know. Um, but uh, um, but anyway, he, he is um, even you know Strider sort of recognizing that um, that he's and I think that uh, that sort of the tone of that joke with Sam's permission we'll call that settled um, that kind of even if joking um, deferral to Sam um, does show I think a kind of respect for his uh, for his point he's not just disregarding Sam he's not just ignoring him um, and I don't think he's not mocking him in the sense of actually making fun of him. For um, for being suspicious, for being resistant in that way, um, but uh, uh, so I mean you can say I th I think that there's a kind of there's a kind of respect there, um, but uh, let's see good let's see other other moments that you guys wanted to talk about let's see other several of you are making sort of more general observations um, uh, let's see yes. Even Strider's poetry reading doesn't melt Sam's suspicion, Sharon says. It's true. Um, you remember what does is the appearance of Corfindel. Um, Sam does trust elves. Um, okay, good. Um, now, right, yes, go, just as Dime was saying, 
Yes. Now, more stuff to talk about. And Sharon, very good. Poetry. This is another really interesting element to him. And we talked about this at the very beginning. The first time we hear Sam open his mouth, which is in that passage with the Green Dragon, in the Green Dragon at the beginning of Chapter 2, his debate with Ed. Um, we don't see, he doesn't recite poetry, but we see him getting poetic, you know, with his sailing, sailing, sailing. Um, you know, we looked at that scene and sort of talked about that. Um, and we were, in discussing that, talking about sort of how he has been thoroughly sort of infected was the word I think that I was using there um, by Bilbo's point of view. He has become, you know, he is an interesting combination. You think of the, I think of it anyway, of the, the term that's used in chapter one of The Hobbit um, when Bilbo gives his description of Gandalf's fireworks. And you remember the narrator says, um, you know, you will see that Bilbo is not so prosy as he liked to believe. And also that he was fond of flowers. Um, so uh, that, that, so that idea of being not so prosy. Um, he believes that he is a very prosy Baggins when in fact there is a lot of poetry. There's a lot of, uh, of, of that more creative, adventurous spirit in him which is associated with poetry, the Tokishness, which is associated with poetry. And of course is going to become a prominent aspect of Bilbo's character to the point where in the Council of Elrond, as we see, um, Elrond is teasing him about it, and uh, you know, if you have not yet cast your story into verse, you may tell it in plain words. And that's a, a very, I mean, I take that as a very good-natured teasing of Bilbo. The fact that even in Rivendell, even among the elves of Rivendell, he is famous for being you know, a poetry guy, right? So that, that's how non-prosy Bilbo becomes. Sam, too, is a really interesting mix, because on the one hand, he, we see him, he, he not only remembers poetry, um, remembers poetry like nobody else does. Frodo has some things in his memory, right? You know, he comes out with some of Bilbo's old songs. We see that in the first, you know, like in chapter three, um, and, you know, when he sings the walking song and when they're singing that song. You know, they remember some of Bilbo's songs. Um, but Sam is the one who is able to come out with the Gilgalad was an Elfin King song, right? Um, it's a piece of Bilbo's rhyming, Bilbo's translation, actually. Which, uh, which he knows. But of course, as Sharon points out, the Troll Song, which is not profound poetry, right? But it's Sam's own invention. Sam has made it up. So we have Sam composing poetry, and even uh, Frodo and the rest of them in this, within the story make a big deal of it, right? You know, when Frodo says, I'm learning a lot about Sam Gamgee. And of course, that's kind of a cue for us. We're learning a lot about Sam Gamgee here, too. So on the one hand, we see um, Sam as being very thoroughly infected with this non-prosiness of Bilbo's, right? His uh, his connection, both literal and sort of symbolic, with 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 poetry. But he's also, in another sense, the most prosaic character there is. We've already talked about how he's very practical. Um, he is very. Some of the Sharon was saying he's very black and white. Um, he is. Um, Anyway, so he, he, he seems very, you know, one is tempted to use the phrase down to earth. You know, he is in contact with both the low and the high simultaneously in ways which we just don't see in other characters. He is the most, um, the most humble, not just like by virtue, but by status. He is the, he is the lowest class character uh, in the entire fellowship. Everybody else in the fellowship, in the entire fellowship, is somebody important, right? 
Gimli is the son of Glowin, one of the you know, one of the most famous dwarves in the Lomon. Legolas, of course, is the son of the Elven king. Boromir, of course, is the son of the ruling steward. Aragorn, of course, is the king. Um, you know, you're Gandalf. Okay, is Gandalf? Um, you've got Frodo as Bilbo's heir and the ring bearer. Merry and Pippin are going to become heads of their great houses, the two you know most sort of famous and adventurous houses uh, of of you know in in the Shire. Sam alone is nobody, is a peasant, is low class, um, and yet he's the one who is, he's the one who's doing, who is the most persistently poetic at the same time. The one whom one would be tempted to say, like, oh, he's not going to understand these high things, right? He's going to be, um, he's not going to be, he's not going to be sensitive to these things. And time and again, not only does he show through his, through his poetry and his verse, that he is in fact in touch with these high things, but we see him not only understanding them better, but he is the mouthpiece for them. He is, is through Sam's attempts to describe the experience of encountering these things that audience are usually given something to hold on to. Um, like remember the only account that we get of the meal that they have with Gilder and the High Elves, right? Um, we're told that you know the it was the food was simple, but it was really really wonderful, and we get a little bit of Pippin's impression, you know, it's like a, that that the bread was really really good. Um, but then it's Sam's words that we get. In Sam's words, we get you know, if I could grow apples like that, I would call myself a gardener. But it was the singing that went to my heart, if you know what I mean. But that's that's the way. You know, more than anything else, it's the experience of that evening um, is in that one sentence by Sam to us, and not that much other description um, is uh, is being given to us. Um, Mike, I agree. Sam has a stock of colorful phrases, folk wisdom that sustains him through the adventure. Um, they do they do ground him and reinvigorate him. Um, yeah, and I think that one of the things that we see is the these sort of low things, that is this sort of traditional stock folk wisdom, these expressions that he gets from his gaffer, but which presumably his gaffer did not make up, um, and, uh, and those things being brought into contact with these high, grand, you know, epic events surrounding him, um, and these high and lofty and noble things. But we see that, you know, there is no conflict between those two things. Those two things in Sam come together really, really well. And I think that that's such an important point of contact uh, for us. Um, you know, Sam is even more than Frodo, more than Marion Pippin. Sam is, I think, the, the closest sort of surrogate that we have, the closest connection that we have. Not to say that we all relate to Sam like Sam is just like all of us. I don't mean that because I don't think that's even true. But what we do get is Sam is the one who is in the closest position of any of the rest of us, right? That is, we presumably, the most of us, at least I'll speak for myself here, I am not the son of a king or the dwarf, uh, you know, one of those prominent dwarfs in the Lonely Mountain. I am not the long lost heir of the kingdom. Uh, you know, my family's not even very rich. I'm just a I'm just a yeah, I'm just a peasant like Sam. But here too, in reading this story, I am going along with these great people and experiencing these high and lofty things beyond my own experience. And there is Sam there to basically make contact with me and with my experience. Again, I don't mean that in the sense of I can relate to Sam, because um, I don't. I don't see in Sam a mirror for myself. But instead, I do see. 
a point of entry, a point of contact, um, somebody who um, helps to sort of transmit that um, that that uh, experience to me. Um, good. Let's see. Liza asks, "Where does the word gaffer come from?" That's a that's a traditional um, that's a traditional English uh, uh, slang word, basically. Um, I believe it is a bastardization of the word grandfather, um, which is why gammer is the female equivalent. Um, so gaffer and gammer is basically a, like a shortening of grandfather and grandmother. It just means it comes to mean old man and old woman. Um, so it's a it's it's a it's like it's a traditional English, but it's a dialectical thing. And I think I think it's an East Midlands thing. I mean, I think it, where where Tolkien was from. Um, that was a joke, by the way, a family joke. Um, when he and his family was on, were on vacation one year, um, there was this really funny old guy, uh, you know, funny talkative old guy that they met, um, and or no, they didn't meet him, but they sort of saw him from a distance, um, and they just they, they thought he was they thought he was very funny, and he seemed you know just like sort of the stereotypical embodiment of like the talkative. Uh, the talkative old codger, and they called him among themselves Gaffer Gamgee. Um, and it became an expression, um, you know, like sort of an inside joke in the Tolkien family. Um, and uh, so when he included an actual character named Gaffer Gamgee uh, in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, it was, again, it was kind of an inside joke with his family to extent. But, but the word Gaffer itself is, I think it's, it's, it's dialectical in that way. Um, Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, as Ed says, um, you know, the theme of the entire novel is the, you know, the, the, the efficacy, the power and importance of the normal person. And as I say, Sam is the only average person in the story. Sam is the protagonist in reality. There are many ways in which, in which that's, you know, he's this sort of covert protagonist, right? And of course, you know, Frodo is the centerpiece of the action. Gandalf is the great hero. Aragorn is the great hero. Um, Sam is... You know, Sam can never get any nomination other than Best Supporting Actor, right? I mean, he's 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 that's his role. But, um, but yet in that sense, um, <laughs> to use a phrase that Tolkien hated in a very real way, um, Tolkien hated that phrase. Thought it was really dumb. Um, but anyway, Sam is the protagonist in 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 a sense, in a sense, at least in that sense of being our kind of point of contact with it. Um, yeah. Um, okay, good. So I'm looking through some of your other comments and observations here. Um, yeah, several of you are pointing out um, sort of his again his sort of pragmatism there. Oh, that's a nice theme. Dima says that you know he travels with a container of salt. Um, yeah, notice again it's Sam that we come to who is actually you know he's the one who he doesn't quite remember in time to pack a rope, but he's the only one who even notices that he hasn't. Right, um, and uh, and and that that reference to his dwindling treasure, um, his 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 little box of salt, that is, I think, a really um, a really telling moment. Again, we just, we wouldn't learn that about anybody else. Nobody else would care. Um, but uh, so, so again, that's what I mean when we when I say that Sam is tied with those sort of very prosaic things. He's the one who's thinking about cooking, you know, while on the trip. And everything. So, um, in that way, he's he's very he he is. That's his sort of the prosaic side. I don't mean side in the sense like Bilbo in Chapter One of the Hobbit, where he's like, you know, has his took side and his bag inside. There's no internal conflict in Sam. 
between the high and the low, between the poetry and the prose. That's one of the things that's so cool about him. From the very beginning, we see that. Um, it is from that first conversation with Ted Sandyman. We see those two things joined together um, in a way in which they won't become like that um, uh, in, uh, in, in Bilbo for, you know, for, for, for many years. Um, yeah. Uh, Mike is saddened by the fact that the elves laugh at Sam's oath. I, 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 don't, I don't think they're mocking him. I don't think the elves are mocking him when they laugh. Um, uh, but it is funny. You know, that is, it is funny. I mean, it's funny. It's, they're, not, they're, not mocking, they're not making fun of him, um, but, but it's funny. It is delightful. You know, it makes them laugh to see, and lots of things make them laugh, but it makes them laugh. Uh, to see this, uh, to see a hobbit acting this way. Remember that they, uh, remember how delighted they were, you know, and Elrond's comment uh, later on saying that perhaps Bilbo is not quite so singular as I always thought him, right? You know, that, that, that there are others who are, you know, weird, strange, in a good way, like Bilbo was. Um, and, and so I think that that's, that's, I think, the reaction that they are, that they are having there. I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's mockery. Um, yes, good. Let's see. Yes, Caden's pointing to Sam's cooking as well. Um, you know, and Timothy to his practicality. Yes, I agree. Um, I agree. Um, yeah. Good. Well, I think you know there are other moments that we could point to. There are other things that we could discuss. Um, but that, that's a good start anyway. It gives us a good foundation from book one to look at Sam and what Sam does and his role in the rest of the story. Um, you know, it, it will it, you know will almost never be very prominent. I mean, he he, he will never be the, a real protagonist when he and Frodo are alone and they want to return to the king. Um, is he going to be really sort of the central focus of the story? But um, uh, but throughout the Fellowship of the Ring, his contributions will continue to be important, and I want you to be noticing those uh, those 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 Sam moments, moments that Sam gets and we don't get from other um, from other uh, from other characters. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that's um, uh, I think that that's I, I, I want you to be paying attention to that stuff as we move forward because I want to come back to it in our last two classes to be looking at. Uh, Sam in the second half and where this comes from. Of course, it's going to be, especially in our last class when we're looking at um, the interactions with Galadriel and then, of course, the breaking of the fellowship. Those are sort of Sam's big moments, I think, um, in uh, in book two. But anyway, we should move on if we're going to get to any poetry, which I really want to get to. Um, so what I want to do today is, you know, I uh, I... I've mentioned that one of the things that I really want to spend time on um, in this go through the Fellowship of the Ring that we're doing together is stuff that I don't normally get to in class. Stuff that, uh, that you know, in order to cover the main things, I have to leave out. Well, what I want to do next is the thing which is most, the purest example of that. That is, whenever I teach on the Fellowship of the Ring, I almost always have in my class notes at the bottom of the page, talk about the ARN Dill poem if, you, if, if there's time. And there's almost never time, and I almost never do it in class. But today, by golly, we're going to talk about the A.R. Endel poem. Um, and what I want to be looking at is essentially to kind of introduce this and contextualize this, the larger issue that I want to be thinking about as we look at this poem. 
is basically what happens to the story, what happens to the characters when we get to Rivendell. Rivendell is a really big moment here. It's not like, you know, I was already suggesting a contrast last time between the role that Rivendell plays in The Hobbit and the role that Rivendell plays in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Rivendell is emphatically not just a short rest in the middle of their journey. It is not like a highly glorified hotel. Again, that's not totally not fair. More of that happens uh, in The Hobbit. But again, that, that is, it's still in sort of that general category. It's a very special and magical hotel at which important things happen and they learn stuff. But at the end of the day, it's still the last homely house. It's still a way. It's still you know a wayside um, you know rest area on the way to the lonely mountain. Um, okay, now I'm thinking of of uh, you know the act has conjured images in my head of like uh, you know Elrond running a stop on the Jersey Turnpike. So I'm going to stop thinking about that. But anyway, that's um, that's essentially the role of of. Uh, of Rivendell in The Hobbit. In The Fellowship of the Ring, though, it's very different. Uh, the, the Rivendell serves as this transition, not just because the arrival at Rivendell is the transition between book one and book two, though that, of course, emphasizes it, but it's really a transition in the story. Um, and it's the place where we learn so much more. I mean, you know, we learned a lot in chapter two, uh, you know, in the, uh, uh, in the Shadow of the Past, we learn even more in chapter two of book two, The Council of Elrond. Um, but but it's not just that. It is where every the perspective on everything changes. Um, we knew Frodo's plan was to leave the Shire and get to the Um And now that he's there, we see that you know this this great journey and this you know several hundred pages of adventures that he's been on so far is only one tiny little step. It's the moment when the world really expands um, and when we begin to understand more clearly exactly what lies ahead and what a big deal this is. But again, it's not only that. It's not only the place where the plot gets bigger and where the larger quest is entered. The way that we look at things, I think, is in, we are invited to change the way that we look at some things, I think. And it's that kind of effect that I want to be looking at. And in order to do that, I want to do some poetry. So let's actually step away. The first thing I want to look at um, you may, some of you may know, but some of you may not, that I, I, what I want to be looking at is the Arundel poem that Bilbo sings in the Hall of Fire after the feast in many meetings. Um, that very long poem. I think, I'm pretty sure that that's the longest poem in the Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any other candidates for that. If there's anything that even threatens that, um, that, Baron and Luthien poem is fairly long. It's not as long as the Arendel poem, I don't think. Anyway, um, it's huge. Um, uh, yeah, Caden, I like it too. That is my favorite. Uh, not only is it my favorite poem in The Lord of the Rings, it's my favorite poem that Tolkien wrote. I love that poem. Um, but what I want to do tonight is I want to look first. Um, uh, oh, yeah, and Caden, the Quenya the poem that Galadriel sings is longer, but only because they give it in two forms, right? I, if you combine the English version and the Quenya version, it's longer, but individually, it's not, I don't think. Anyway, um, I want to be looking at, um, yeah, Dime was thinking of the same thing, right? Exactly, but I think it's, it only seems that long because we get it twice <laughs> unabridged. Um, but uh, anyway, A. Randall was a mariner. 
Some of you may know, some of you may not know that this is a much later version of this poem. Um, this poem is based on an earlier poem that Tolkien had written, in fact, that Tolkien had published. And he published this poem in 1933 in the Oxford Magazine. Um, and uh, uh, I want to say, what we're going to do here tonight is actually read, um, uh, is actually read the original 1933 poem that he published. Uh, you can find this poem, by the way, in a book I didn't require for the class, um, in from the history of North, the Treason of Isengard. It's book two. It's book seven, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, of the overall History of Middle-earth series, um, part two of the History of the Lord of the Rings subset of the History of Middle-earth series. Um, anyway, that's where you can find uh, Christopher Tolkien's full chapter on the development of this poem. Um, but it's, it's very interesting. Um, let's read it. I'm going to read it for you. And when, as we're reading it, I'm going to put it up on screen here. As I'm reading it, there are two main things that I want you to pay attention to. One is the plot of the poem, like the, like the A. Arendel poem, or kind of like the A. Arendel poem. Um, it is a narrative poem. It tells a story. Um, but also I want you to pay attention to the sound and the play of words. As you will see very quickly, this is a poem which is intensely interested in the sound of words and is playing on the sound of words. I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, so, um, so I want you to be sort of, you know, making notes to yourself, think, you know, because I want I'll, we're going to be doing observations on this afterwards. I want you to tell me what you think is interesting, what you think is, is striking and important about this poem, what, what you notice as I read it. There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner, built a gilded gondola to wander in, and had in her a load of yellow oranges and porridge for his provender. He perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom, he called the winds of Argosies with cargoes in to carry him across the river seventeen that lay between to tarry him. He landed all in loneliness where stonily the pebbles on the running river Darylin goes merrily forever on. He wandered over meadowland to shadowland and dreariness, and under hill and over hill a rover still to weariness. He sat and sang a melody, her errant, his errantry tarrying. He begged a pretty butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. She laughed at him, deluded him, deluded him unpitying, so long he studied wizardry and sigildry and smithying. He wove a tissue airy thin to snare her, to follow in. He made a beetle leather wing and feather wing and swallow wing. He caught her in bewilderment, in filament of spider thread. He built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. He made her shoes of diamond, on fire and a-shimmering. A boat he built her marvelous, a carvel all a-glimmering. He threaded gems and necklaces, and recklessly she squandered them. Fluttering and wavering and quavering, they wandered on. They fell to bitter quarreling, and sorrowing he sped away. On windy weather, wearily and drearily, he fled away. He passed the archipelagos, where yellow grows the marigold, where countless silver fountains are, and mountains are of fairy gold. He took to war and forraying, a harrying beyond the sea, roaming over Belmarie and Thelamy and sea. He made a shield and morion of coral and of ivory, a sword he made of emerald, and terrible his rivalry with all the knights of Airy and Fairy and Thelamy. Of crystal was his habergeon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His javelins were of malachite and stalactite. He bit them. 
and went and fought the dragonflies of paradise and vanquished them. He battled with the Dumbledores, the Bumbles, and the Honeybees, and won the golden honeycomb, and run home on sunny seas, in ship of leaves and gossamer, with blossom for a canopy, he polished up and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. He tarried for a little while in little isle and plundered them, and webs of all the adder cops he shattered them and sundered them. Then coming home with honeycomb and money none to memory, his message came and errand too in daring do and glamoury. He had forgot them, journeying and turning a wonder. So now he must depart again and start again his gondola, forever still a messenger, a passenger, a terrier, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner. All right. So, what do you notice? Um, what do you notice about this poem? Tell me what struck you as I was reading it. And again, as I said, the two things, the two things that I really want to focus on in talking about this poem are both the sound, the way the verse works. This is a really striking verse form. Um, it is, it is very unusual. It is a really remarkable way to write poetry. Um, you will probably be able to hear it. I mean, I, I as Ed's is a very complicated line, uh, rhyme scheme. Um, it's, uh, um, it's, yes, it's 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 beyond complicated. It is um, extremely unusual in English to do anything this complicated. See what he's doing. Um, so just to to kind of point here. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, so we have here, there was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. The fundamental rhyme scheme is every alternate line line rhymes. Mariner had in her provender, her carry him, tarry him. Now, one thing that you already notice um, is that those rhymes tend to be multi-syllabic line rhymes. He's not just rhyme, rhyming terminal syllables. He's rhyming multiple syllables at the end, which in English is really hard to do. Um, there are very few people who even attempt to do consistent multisyllabic rhymes in English. You do it in other languages. You can do it in Italian pretty easily um, because there's more between passenger and messenger. So we get a second multi-syllable rhyme in the middle of the two, you know, so, so each and then a terminal rhyme which rhymes with the next couplet. Passenger, messenger, gondola, wandering. Some of them are assonances. Those rhymes are less close than the end rhymes, um, but the persistence of the sounds um, striking effect because of the way they're juxtaposed right up against each other. Passenger, a messenger. Um, oranges and porridge, marjoram and cardamom. Argosies with cargoes in. River 17 that lay between. Uh, loneliness where stonily, derelin goes merrily. Meadowland to shadowland. 
um, we see that very, very persistently and very noticeably. Um, and the effect is, uh, Liza, I agree, whimsy is exactly, um, is exactly the, um, uh, the a, a word that I would definitely use for this poem. And it, even without paying any attention to the content, even without looking at the actual plot of the story or looking at the character and what happens, just the sound of it creates that whimsical effect. And I think that that's a really important thing. We get a lot of alliteration too, as you point to, and, and, and that assonance which tends to be really, um, really, uh, really broad. Mike, great observation. I mean, it makes so many three-syllable words. Yes, there is a lot of multiple-syllable words in this poem, um, uh, which is, um, you know, I think that's... Um, and also, as Mike says, three-syllable phrases um, to achieve that bum-bum-bum rhythm, yes. Um, and porridge for his provender, he perfumed her with margarine and cardamom and lavender. Yes, yes. Um, it is part of. It's really woven into the. It's it's it's, it's the base of the rhythm of this entire, um, of this entire poem, which is highly rhythmical. Um, yes, very good. Um, yeah. Um, yes, good, good. Um, yeah, and Mike, as you say, there are some. There are many places where that internal rhyme. Is quite close. Um, deluded him, eluded him. Um, the bower flower rhyme, or fly and flutter by. Um, the seventeen and laid that lay between. I would also point to um, lots of things. Um, lots of things like that. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Mike, I agree. It's a strange kind of rhythm. Um, Mike is trying to compare it to a uh, to a, a, a like a musical rhythm. Um, you know, it's definitely not four-four time, um, which is to say, it's not iams, right? I mean, that's the way that um, you know, some a poem iambic meter, you know, bum 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 bum. That often works that way. What I was just doing was iambic tetrameter, which was a pretty popular verse form. So no, it doesn't feel like that. It you know. Uh, there was a merry passenger, a messenger, a merry dun 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 dun. Yeah, it, that's that is very much the the um, the frame. So great observation. Um, there is there are says there are a lot of words I'm unfamiliar with. Me too. In fact, there are many words he like. Sigildry, there's a reason you're unfamiliar with that word, Sarah. He flat made that word up. That word never existed. Uh, Tolkien invented that word in that, in that line um, because he felt that that word should exist. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's um, um, uh, yeah, but, but even, even apart from words that he actually invented or words that are really obscure, um, that he that is obscure because they they come from other languages or, or from old languages. Uh, Dumbledores, by the way, that, it just means a, it's it's a it's a word for bumblebees, um, but uh, um, but it's an old word for bumblebees. Um, and uh, and adder cops, which of course you'll recognize from um, from uh, from the Hobbit, of course, the, from the Spider verses. Um, and again, that's just from Anglo-Saxon um, words for spider. But uh, um, 
uh, Jeff is complaining about having no sense of rhythm. As you, you can you can build it, Jeff. You can build it. You can train it in your ear. Um, the more you read poetry aloud, the more you listen to poetry around, the more you can feel it. And it's a great thing. I gotta tell you, um, uh, it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful skill to cultivate because it opens up a whole world of uh, of significance um, when you can actually hear. Especially, you know, not all authors think this way. Not all authors are really attuned to the sound of the language. Um, but there are some authors who really are attuned to the sound of language. Tolkien certainly was. Joyce certainly was. There, there, there are many. Um, but, uh, but anyway, to just sort of hear the rhythm and the sound. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's good, Caden. We got the song about uh, Adderkop, exactly. And again, that's just an Anglo-Saxon uh, term. Um, for uh, for for it's based on Anglo-Saxon terms for spiders anyway. Um, now, on to the content of the poem. What's it about? What do you notice? Well, first thing, let me point out the one uh, first uh, first observation. This poem is not about Arundel, right? Not at all. It's about a mariner. Um, who has adventures in fairy, and there seem to be sort of fairy-ish elements about him, um, he's not Arundel, and he's not connected. This story is not connected. It's not like given any chronology here. That is, we're given no point of contact with the history, whether it be of Middle-earth or of our time. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, What else? What else do you notice? Oh, good. Yeah, Sharon points out the the moon poem that Frodo in Prancing Pony also uses m multiple word rhymes. Yes, yes, um, yeah. So I agree, Lasa. It is very hard to find another author who takes such delight in words themselves and the sound of words. Um, I agree. It is of, of of reading Tolkien to sort of get that sort of delight uh, in words. Second hand, um, yeah. Timothy points. Uh, Goethe is a good uh, a good uh, example. Says uh, Goethe does that kind of uh, the, the incantation or sound emphasis very well in Faust. Uh, I believe you. Uh, sadly, Timothy, I have no German, so I've never been able to uh, to experience that. German on my medium list. Uh, it's on my short list of languages I really want to learn, but it's but it's but it's up there. It's maybe fourth. Third or fourth on my list of languages I really want to learn. Um, Old Norse and Italian are at the top of my list of languages I really want to learn. And then, but German is probably maybe third or maybe fourth in that list. I'm tempted to try to learn Gaelic, but I might not have time. Uh, that is my life. My, that might not be long enough, I mean. Um, okay, good. Now, uh, So back to the, oh, after, what languages do I already know? Uh, English, the various dialects of English, Old English, and uh, Old and Middle English. And uh, old French and modern French and Latin, um, though uh, you know my Latin is so far out of practice, it's uh, it's uh, shocking. Uh, anyway, um, oh, in Greek, of course, Greek is another one that's on my short list. That's the one that's number three. Um, okay, good. Um, uh, it's a, Timothy. Good question. Um, how does it, does this rhyme scheme relate? Um, you know, is it similar to the rhyme scheme that Dante uses in the Divine Comedy? His terza rima, 
No. Um, and the, the main thing I would say that is, that is different about those, Terza Rima, um, it's really, I'd have to draw you a map to show you how Terza Rima works, but it's a heavily interlocked rhyme scheme. So that what you don't get in Terza Rima is um, chunks. You don't get like stanzas and breaks. It flows continuously so that you know, you've got the rhymes, they're spacing between lines, but they're interwoven with other sets of... There's three rhymes, it's what's called terza rima, um, uh, triple rhyme. Um, so you have uh, three rhyming lines interlocked, three other rhyming, rhyming lines which are interlocked with the next three. Um, and so it's this unbreakable chain which never has a stanza break, which never has an ending. Um, and usually, uh, you know, Dante then will, will pick up where he left off the rhyme scheme at the beginning of the next canto, and in fact, delightfully, the end of the poem uh, rhymes with the first line of the poem, so the whole thing actually makes a circle. Dante was incredible with this. Um, so the primary thing about Terza Rima, about Dante's rhyme, is that it's all it's it's this unbreakable circle, um, and as you can see, this rhyme scheme does not look like that at all. It's in very discrete chunks. Um, these little chunks of rhyme. Um, both the ones that are right up against each other at the beginning and end of, 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 of those lines, and then those ones that come every other line. Um, so we do have very discrete chunks um, within the two lines and then for the four-line chunks. Um, okay, anyway, sorry. I'm getting all carried away and talking about the, and talking about the poetry there. Uh, terza rima, the Italian word, T-E-R-Z-A-R-I-M-A, -E terza rima. Um, is, is famously the rhyme scheme that Dante invented for uh, the Divine Comedy. Um, okay, good. Um, let's see. Sarah asks a good question. Thank you, Sarah, for bring, bringing me back onto the topic of the content of this uh, uh, of this poem. Um, is this mariner supposed to be human? I thought so, but I don't know how we could ask a butterfly to marry him. Perhaps butterfly isn't actually referring to the evolved form of a caterpillar. Uh, no, I think it is. I think it is, actually. Um, because you'll notice that uh, he does seem to be very small, this mariner. Um, look at that uh, here on this, uh, on this first page here, this final stanza. He wove a tissue airy thin to snare her in, to follow in. He made a beetle leather wing and feather wing and swallow wing. So he made wings for himself. He caught her in bewilderment, in filament of spider thread. He built a little bower house, a flower house, to hide her head. Um, so he seems to be about as, as the butterfly. Um, he's making wings, again, I, I presume for himself, presumably he doesn't have to manufacture wings for the butterfly, um, uh, of beetle leather and feathers. Um, uh, he, he, he's small. He's small. Um, yes, Mike has hit on it exactly, uh, and Timothy, too, has asked exactly, are both are going to, to just the, the right place. Um, Tolkien famously hated the Victorian tradition of little diminutive, you know, bluebell fairies who hid in cowslips and, uh, you know, like, a um, you know, buttercups with, uh, you know, dew gemstones and all that kind of thing. He hated that tradition. He thought it was a demeaning of the sort of the tradition of fairies and fairy. 
um, that uh, you know the Victorians inherited from the Middle Ages. Gosh, doesn't this sound just like that? In fact, these are diminutive fairies. I'm sorry, they are. They are. He did, and he did this in more than one place. Remember the date, 1933. This is early in his career. Um, not super early. Not not. Uh, you know, he was writing Silmarillion material in the 19-teens, um, so it's not like the very, very beginning of his writing career, um, but, but it's still pretty early. Now, this is, this is not something that he composed in 1933. He had written it or drafted it well before and then had revised it and published it in 1933. Um, but yeah, good, David is pointing to this thing. Um, he is playing in that world of the miniature elves, uh, that he disliked. Um, and again, we can see this. We can see this in lots of different places. He began his writing career essentially accepting the Victorian framework. Um, you can see in the earliest Silmarillion material, um, when he's talking about the legends of the state, you read the Book of Lost Tales, what, what you find is that these, these are the stories of the old days, of the, the ancient days of the earth, um, when the world was new and the elves were still young and strong and great and they were out there doing these things, but you know what? They're going to fade and they're going to become little diminutive bluebell fairies by the end. The fading of the elves, which we still have reference to in The Lord of the Rings, though it's now very different than it was then in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, again, what he was doing was sort of explaining uh, <laughs> all of a sudden the, that line uh, that, uh, uh, what's his name, Bernard Hill, uh, as they had in the movie delivers, how did it come to this, right? That's his expert, that, 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 that's what he's doing uh, in those early stories. How did we get to little bluebell, well, I'll tell you how we got to little bluebell fairies, right? Let's start back in the days when the elves were doing all the, and then how they fade and diminished uh, to what, how we understand them today. Timothy, this is like Goblin Feet, yeah, which is the the poem that he published early in his career. Yes, it's like it. It's not quite as cloying as Goblin Feet. Um, it didn't make him want to puke later on in his life. Um, but um, uh, but but yeah yeah. Now he hated Goblin Feet later on. Um, but uh, but yes, in general, it is of that same kind of tradition. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Mike says, like a painter, he has absorbed and mastered this tradition. He can do teeny-weeny elves better than the Victorians. Now he can move on to paint his own elves. Yes, in a sense, it kind of, you know, his own, his own convictions and conceptions of the elves really sort of grew out of this, um, in part in reaction to this, but not consistently in reaction against it. Now, as Erica points out, though, and this is a very important thing to notice, um, she says, I'm hearing a prelude to the Baron Amuthian song, Flits Away from the Mariner. Um, yes, absolutely. Eluded, she laughed at him, deluded him, eluded him unpitying. Um, yes, the, the flight of the butterfly. Um, uh, it's, it does resemble, that moment resembles the Baron Amuthian story. Um, now it's, deri it's derived from it, not the other way around. Number 1933, um, the Baron Luthien story, it's different in the Book of Lost Tales, but it's there, you know, that's back, you know, by 1920. Um, and then you've got the Baron Luthien story being developed. Remember I said he 
Um, did I say it? I can't remember if I said it in this class. I think so. No, I did. Talked about the epic poem, right? The Lay of Lathian um, that Tolkien had written about the, and that he he had already stopped writing that. He had already written several thousand lines and given up of that poem um, <clears throat> before he started writing The Hobbit. So that that stuff all predates um, this time. So. Uh, so, Erica, if there's a similarity, there's a similarity because he is hearkening back to Baron and Luthien in this moment. But again, isn't that interesting, though? This whimsical uh, uh, little diminutive fairy poem has echoes of Baron and Luthien in it, right? That, I think, is uh, an interesting thing. Um, and again, we can see the diminutive stuff later on when he is battling with uh, bumblebees and uh, and all of this stuff again, we can see that the mariner is really is really is really quite small. Um, and if we look again, um, I want to spend the whole class on this poem. But uh, if we get at the end of the poem, just to remember where our mariner ends up, he tarried for a little while in little isles and plundered them. So he's just having adventures here, right? And webs of cops, he shattered them and sundered them. Then coming home with honeycomb and money none to memory, his message came, an errand too. In daring do and glamoury, he had forgot them journeying and turning a wanderer. Oh man, I was supposed to do something. I forgot. So now he must depart again and start again his gondola, forever still a messenger, a passenger, a terrier, a roving as a does, a weather-driven mariner. It's really kind of an upbeat ending. In fact, there, it ends with what sounds like kind of a comic turn. He has all these adventures and comes back and says, oh, I forgot to do what I originally set out to do. I better go back. And what we get is this open-ended sense of like, and basically he goes on to have adventures for the rest of his life. Um, so it's really, if anything, a cheerful ending. Um, he asks the important question, how does he get from this stuff to the Arundel poem, um, that's what I want to look at. Um, let's look. I didn't copy out the entire Arundel poem, um, but I want to look at some passages from it. And if there are other moments in the poem that you want to allude to, and if you have your books with you, feel free to. I'm not saying we can't talk about them all, but I didn't want. To, I, I didn't type them all out. Um, but again, now keeping in mind again both things, both the sound of it and the content of it. I want to talk about both of those things here, too. Arendel was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made. Her prow was fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners made. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands. From gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste, and roving still on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and passed, and never light he saw of shining shore, nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from west to east and errandless, unheralded he homeward sped. From ever even lofty hot hills, where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore, a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end then he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, burning as an island star. 
On high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where gray the Norland waters run. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days, in years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, an orbed star, to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. For ever still a herald on an errand that should never rest, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of West. Okay, what do you notice? What do you notice here? Similarities, differences. Now, I, I, I want to do, like we did before, I want to focus first on form and then on content. So first I want to talk about the actual, um, the sound and the rhythm and all that stuff of this poem. What do you notice? There, of course, we have the same general pattern, right? We have the same rhyme scheme, that same internal rhyme scheme um, in general. Um, yeah, and Liza asks a great question that uh, uh, points to exactly one of the observations I was going to make. She says, what's a flamifer, right? We'll get to another word. He's not exactly making up, um, but kind of constructing ways. It's not a very common word. You can make it out. Um, uh, the word ifer, uh, the, the, rather the part of the word, I-F-E-R, means one who bears something, one who carries something. Um, so that's why the word Lucifer, the name Lucifer, for instance, means light bearer, one who bears light. Um, uh, uh, lux means light in Latin, so Lucifer is the, is the light bearer. Um, this is also why if you've ever been to a very high church service um, where they use incense um, uh, in the service and they have somebody waving uh, the, 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 the thing of incense um, around, uh, that person is called the thurifer. Uh, the one who bears the incense, uh, which again is um, so. Um, so yes, it means the carrier of flame. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, good. More. Now, let's see. Um, a couple observations. Jeff says simpler words. Yeah, they tend to be shorter words. You're right. We don't get all of those three-syllable words. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's the, the, the actual complexity of the words themselves um, is, is diminished. We still, still do get touches like flamifer um, was, Liza was the one I was thinking of uh, right before you asked that. But, um, um, but yeah, but generally the language, the language is simpler. The, the words are shorter. Um, I think that that's right. The rhythm is not totally different. Um, but what do you notice about the, the, the rhythm? Um, it's a little less persistent, right? Bum, 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 was a mariner, sounds like it, that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathil to journey in. Notice that? He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathil to journey in. See how it shifts to a to a more iambic beat. Dun, 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 dun. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made. Her prow would he fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. The effect of that is for it to be more fluid. Um, a really bouncy rhythm, like the other one, again, just to, to, to maintain the contrast. Um, they fell, they fell to bitter quarreling and sorrowing. He sped away on windy weather, wearily and drearily. He fled away. That kind of bounce that you get, it creates a comical effect. 
Um, hopefully you want that. I mean, I've seen many poets create that kind of a rhythm and they don't mean to be funny and usually it has disastrous artistic results which are themselves unintentionally comical but um, uh, but that kind of meter is intrinsically sort of light and comical. It's hard to be serious when you're sounding like that but here though we get references to it, we get memories of that rhythm. Aarendel was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian um, you know, he built a boat of timber felled and nimbra fell to journey and is much more flowing and is much more fluid. Um, the whole poem is much more fluid than that. Um, than, that is than the original one. Uh, good, good. Um, more. Yeah. Caden, the end rhymes aren't exactly gone, but they're le less prominent than they were. Um, um, you can... Um, you can lose them, and you'll notice also he's added a little bit more. Um, that is this tendency. If you look at the second stanza I have there, beneath the moon and under star, he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands, um, from gnawing gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste and roving still um, there we can see the same pattern right strands lands hills still um, which is like the other one but you'll notice we no longer have multisyllabic uh, um, rhymes right it's not we don't hit it as hard when you have a multisyllabic uh, rhyme when you're when you're when you're rhyming um, things again to, to look back at it um, when you're rhyming things like uh, squandered them they wandered on and uh, um, sped away and fled away and uh, marigold and fairy gold uh, you can't like you can't miss that rhyme it smash, smacks you in the face every time you come through these are just one syllable rhymes um, and you don't land on them quite as much and sometimes he almost slips into rhymes on the other lines um, uh, like uh, you know, from ever even's lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall his wings him bore a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall um, it, it's I, I mean we, we can we can see some um, some other there are other assonances that we can sort of pick up on um, now Ed is pointing to there's there are some lines which are still containing long, you know longish words in the Arundel poem, uh, you know his uh, 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 the Habergian and the scabbard of Chalcedony. Um, well, but what do you notice about those Ed? Those are the only lines taken verbatim from the old poem. Um, it, this I don't know if you noticed uh, if you noticed that, um, but uh, when we were reading it here. Um, in this part, this is the description of his armor in the original Mariner poem, um, which is called Erringery, by the way. This is the title of the poem. Um, of crystal was his habergion, his scabbard of chalcedony. Um, that is, his scabbard of chalcedony is the only line taken word for word from the original poem into the Arundel poem. Um, so, uh, so there you go. Um, okay, more, more. Um, what do you know? What more do you know um, about the? Let's see. Good. Um, the internal rhymes. It's it's different, right? 
um, it doesn't sound the same. Just as with the terminal rhymes, we don't get that multisyllabic lines. Very rarely do we get that um, very pronounced multisyllabic echo in the middle. It does come in occasionally, um, and it's very noticeable when it does, of course, in the first two lines, a mariner that tarried in, um, a boat of timber felled and nimbra failed to journey in. Um, we do get those moments like that. But then we get a lot of moments like the end of that stanza. Her prow he fashioned like a swan and light upon her banners laid. That internal rhyme has diminished just to the assonance between the word swan and the word upon, right? It's very slight and you could not even, it's possible, unless you're really listening to it, unless you're really saying it aloud and listening to it, it's possible to miss it entirely. Um, the winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled. Um, uh, you know, in uh, in in the errantry, in the old poem, he would have he would have rhymed driving him with like striving in or something like that, right? It would have been a really close rhyme like that. Instead, we get came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled. Um, there is no rhyme there; just assonance. Blindly is like driving has similar vowel sounds and the him and in. So we get a multi-syllabic assonance between the two of them, but not a rhyme even really closely. And yet we still have that link, that connection. Um, errandless, unheralded. Not a rhyme, but again, a sort of a similarity, a link. Um, uh, good. So what else? Is, yeah, yeah. So, so very good, Ken. As you're saying, the rhymes are still there, but you overlook them. They are easy to overlook. Um, very good. Um, yes, good. Mike says nature is not small; it is huge. We are uh, yes, we are dealing with big things um, in this poem. This poem has become. I find the evolution of this poem in Tolkien's writing fascinating. Is what fascinates me about it is that Tolkien would even think of it. I mean, he has this whimsical, kind of silly, uh, bouncing, um, comical fairy poem, you know, diminutive fairy poem. And he takes that and he's like, no, no, that Eärendil, uh, you know, that sort of the tragic and her heroic voyage of Eärendil, that's where I'm going with that. I'm going to take that poem and I'm going to, I'm going to make my little uh, you know my my little fairy, you know my little puck sprite, and I'm gonna I, 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 I'm gonna turn him into Aerendel. That um, that transition, that transformation, is enormous, um, and really, um, I think. Well, I think it's very remarkable. Look at the ending again. We were focusing on the ending of the uh, um, the Mariner's song. Um, A wonder of the waking dawn where gray the Norland waters run. And over Middle-earth he passed and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days and years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade and orbed star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. For ever still a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the Flanifer of Westerness. Just like, notice how he is he's taken the plot elements of the ending of the first poem, and he's kept them, but transformed them incredibly. Notice, what are the similarities? The similarities between 
the uh, the ending of the first poem and the ending of this one. Yes, as uh, Sharon says, whimsy to epic. Absolutely, absolutely good. Um, yeah, as Erica says, this is a very serious epic poem. As Giselle, good. The, the contact there, his journey is still ongoing, right? Except instead of that sort of funny and fun that is funny to us as readers and fun for the protagonist, like, oh, well, I shall continue on adventures then, um, ending that we get at the, of, of the first poem, here we have tragedy. We have his longing, um, his longing to return home. Um, let me go uh, back a little bit. From World's End, then he turned away and yearned again. Notice again that there, this one of those moments where that rhyme comes back, turned away and yearned again. The connection that he establishes through the rhyme between the turning and the yearning, right? Um, anyway. He turned away and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying and burning as an island star. I love that internal line. Journeying and burning as uh, an island star. On high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where gray the northern waters run. This is his return home, right? And then when he gets there, unlike the first Mariner, who's forgotten his errand, <laughs> and realizes when he gets home, oh, I didn't do my errand. I'd better go out. Um, he has completed his errand, and in fact, in returning, he is completing. He is a wonder ere the waking dawn. We have that transition in that stanza from his own feelings about returning to the feelings of, uh, of the people who see his star in the sky. Um, and we have, of course, this other dimension entirely. That is this other dimension which is not about him. And over Middle-earth he passed and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days in years of yore. He hears the suffering of others. It's his, his compassion for them, um, which is why he has chosen as he has chosen, why he has done what he has done. Uh, it's his compassion for the suffering of others. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade an orbed star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortal are, where mortals are. Nevermore on hither shores. Forever still an errand, a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of westerness. And you'll notice that incredibly poignant rhyme between westerness, never rest. Um, just amazing. I guess this poem blows my mind. As I said, I think that this poem is the greatest piece of poetry that Tolkien ever wrote. I, I, I think that this is the greatest, this is the pinnacle of Tolkien's poetic genius as far as I am concerned. I don't think he does it better than this anywhere. Um, and it is, it is amazing. Um, and particularly amazing when you see um, where it came from, you, when you, when you, it's the comparing and contrasting to the original poem Errantry is uh, just really makes things pop out in this poem that you take for granted. When you enter it, just being like, yeah, okay, it's the story of Errand or whatever. Um, you know, it's this is uh, this is really different. Um, yeah, good, Sharon. Arundel's journey was a transformation. The fairy remained the same. Yes, it's about his remaining the same, right? That's the joke at the end. Um, yeah. Good, good. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, very good. Very good, Sarah. Um, no, I agree. I, this is, uh, but now where I want to go to from this, what I, what I want to see from this is the, as I said, that sort of the transition, the transformative uh, um, aspect of Rivendell itself, of the, the sort of the, what we see, what we come, what we come into contact with as readers in the House of Elrond and the Fellowship of the Ring, and what the characters come into contact with. Because of course, this song, this is Bilbo's song. It's Bilbo singing, right? Though Frodo doesn't even realize that it's him at first, right? He thinks that he's dreaming. He's caught up in these elvish visions, which are half sleep and half enchantment. Um, and Bilbo's song acts on him in the same way. Um, Bilbo, the Hobbit is now speaking of high things and um, participating as a creator, as a sub-creator, in the enchantment of the elves there in Rivendell. And again, it is, I think, that fact is made even more poignant by the knowledge of this poem and where this poem came from. This poem, of course, itself has been transformed in a very similar way. Bilbo was a very 1933 errantry poem kind of hobbit. Um, you know that is that's that's kind of the world that the world of sort of of whims you know that you know it would be it would strain it too much to say that transition from the Hobbit uh, in 1937 to the Lord of the Rings in 1954 is that same you know kind of tra you know is is you, know, you can make a kind of parallel um, the Hobbit is being told in a sort of a traditional late Victorian um, kind of uh, tradition of of funny children's stories and things, you know, it does, it fit, as I'm going to be talking about in my Hobbit class at Mythgard this fall, it, it does fit into the tradition of works like Alice in Wonderland and Winnie the Pooh. Um, it's very much kind of in that mode in, 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 in many ways. And Bilbo, who is the titular Hobbit, right, you know, he is the Hobbit in question, we see him changed here. We see Bilbo has been naturalized into this world. Um, in a really profound way, and in a way which I think is sort of points to um, not just the changes in this story, but the way that this story itself has been sort of naturalized into that world. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and you know, and Erica, you're right to point this out. Erica's still talking about the poem, um, saying that it always struck her as an extremely sad poem that Arendel is made immortal and forced to circle the earth as a star, watching others suffer and suffering himself until the end of time. It seems a terrible punishment. Um, yes and no. I mean, I th I don't, it's not purely punishment, you know, and it's not purely, but there are those elements of sadness to it. I mean, it is. And I, that's why Aragorn responds to it the way that he does, right? It says, it says to Bilbo, if you have the cheek to make songs about Eorendo and Elrond's house, um, then it's his affair, right? Um, that's why it's so cheeky to do that because um, it, it is sad. You know, it's it's a it is a song for Elrond personally. This is a song about why you never see your dad anymore, <laughs> right? Um, you know that uh, that his father departed and has ne was never allowed to return. Um, and yeah, the fact that he can know that that star that they can see in the sky uh, is his father up there in the heavens. It doesn't exactly make that better, right? Um, so yes, it is tragic, but of course that's part of the that's part of the um, part of the transformation that's happened, right? It, it's not just 
from low things to high things. It's not just from little things to big things that we see both of those things happening um, uh, in the transition of, of these poems, but it's also from comedy to tragedy. Um, it's, there's, there's real sadness and there's real loss and there's real sacrifice. The errand, um, which was such a small thing um, and kind of a joke, if anything, in that first poem, is now a very serious thing. Uh, and uh, a, a very not just sort of an epic thing, but uh, but but a tragic thing. Um, um, yes, Giselle Elrond does explicitly mention that Arendil was his father in the Council of Elrond, um, and uh, which is you're right to ask that question because of course we know this from the Silmarillion, but again, as I've said several times before. 1954, people didn't know that, right? People don't have access to the Silmarillion in 1954, so um, they would not have known the stories of the Silmarils. Um, but, um, but he does mention it, and I, I believe that the mention, the reference uh, that Elrond makes to the fact that Eärendil was his father um, is designed to explain the comment that Aragorn makes to Bilbo, why it is that uh, it was particularly cheeky uh, to write an Arendil song. Um, um, yeah, I agree, Liza. It is it is that kind of tragedy is is sort of an essential element of the story of the elves in Tolkien. Absolutely. I mean, everything everything in the elves is tinged with sadness. Um, and but again, I think that that's part of the transition. When you think about the difference between where we are at the beginning of chapter one, even where we are in chapter three. Remember. Um, the the sort of the, the tone and attitude of Frodo and Sam and Pippin's trip across the Shire at the beginning, especially before they meet the Black Riders, and even not just like them and what they say and how they act, but how the story goes, the kind of story it is. Um, remember the fox who comes by and uh, says to himself uh, that you know I've never seen hobbits sleeping out under a tree, right? Um, you know we've left that miles and miles behind. Um, but that I think is an important transition. That you know, the long expected, you know, the the the, the jokes at the party and the J Bilbo's, you know, jokes uh, that he leaves tied to the presents he leaves to people after. You know, all of that kind of whimsical, comical stuff that we get at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. That's ages ago now. We've changed. Bilbo's changed. Frodo's changed now. Um, Everything is different. We have come into contact with this higher world, and I think that um, it's something that Tolkien constructs really interestingly, um, and which is especially more powerful, I think, if you come from the Hobbit and you're familiar with the Hobbit and can see sort of the change in Bilbo here. Um, I think that that's a really um, uh, yeah, good. Liza was just saying the same like same contrast with the Hobbit, which is not tinged with sadness. Uh, really at all, I agree. Not certainly not in the same way. Um, and I get this. I would say. I mean, I don't want to generalize and say this is the important thing about Rivendell, but it's certainly an important thing about Rivendell. And then I've been pointing to the impact of Rivendell as a a, a, a very important transitional moment in this story. This is the kind of thing that I'm pointing to. And then I want to just sort of look at two other things about. Bilbo and Rivendell, and then we'll call it a night. Um, we see that this doesn't mean, of course, the stuff I've been saying does not mean that Bilbo 
is only interested in you know tragic and sad songs about Eorindel. Um, uh, he sits down for some real talk with Frodo, right, first, and th that is by which he means he wants news, you know, give us some real news, and he, he wants news from the Shire. Um, and he's interested to hear all of the small doings of the Shire, and Sam helps, and they tell him all the gossip and everything else, um, and he is lost in that, and he loves that. He, he, he still has not lost contact with that world or lost interest in that world. He cares about it. The two things that I want to point to which are really, I think, the clearest window into where Bilbo is. Not what Rivendell means, but where Bilbo is. Um, is this, this is when they leave the Hall of Fire. He led Frodo back to his own little room. It opened, up, it opened on the gardens and looked south across the ravine of the Bruinen. They, there they sat for some while, looking through the window at the bright stars above the steep climbing woods and talking softly. They spoke no more of the small news of the Shire far away, nor of the dark shadows and perils that encompassed them, but of the fair things they had seen in the world together, of the elves, of the stars, of trees, and the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. Now what do we see here? What do they talk about? What's, what's interesting about this, do you think? What does this show us about sort of Bilbo and Frodo and where they are and what they're thinking about? In these moments, um, we see some content. of the Hall of Fire, you know, the Hall of Fire being sort of the center of elvish song and enchantment that even Bilbo himself participates in and contributes to, and now they are, I think it's, it's sort of symbolically significant that his room is small, right, his own little room, um, opening the gardens. Um, so that is, this is, this is a place, it seems, a kind of I guess a, a kind of point of contact, if you will, between the Elvish stuff and the Hobbit stuff. Um, they are standing, you know, from a little Hobbit place and looking out at the great things. They're not in the Hall of Fire anymore. They're not immersed in these things, but they're still thinking about them. They're still considering them. Um, yeah, good. And Sharon, I agree. An important element in this is not just what they're looking at now, but as Sharon says, the good old days for them, you know, how they passed many pleasant times together, thinking of their own walks and the things that they've seen together. Um, but, but not just reminiscing, right? Not just, oh, yeah, you remember that time when we walked through the woody end and we saw that? Yeah, it's not that, right? They're looking out at the woods of Rivendell and they're thinking, they're talking of, of the things they've seen, of elves, of stars, of trees. Um, it is, again, informed by and I would be tempted to say transformed by this contact with the elves, this with their time in the Hall of Fire. Um, yeah, sir, I agree. They're appreciating the beauty of nature and of the world. Um, there is a kind of wonder to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, 
And yeah, I share and I agree. They often spoke of elven things together before. Yeah, it's not to say I don't want. I'm not trying to say that this is like brand new. This is the transformation in the sense that it had never happened before. No, this had been an element. And for Bilbo, this is clearly his retirement here is clearly the sort of the fulfillment or the the, the sort of the consummation of where his life had been going, rather than a sudden shift in it. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. So no, I, I I agree. I'm not trying to say that this is like, and now this has happened to them suddenly. Um, but um, but yes, good, Mike. I agree. I'm glad you noticed that. Um, uh, things they had seen, beautiful things, fair things they had seen. Yeah, okay. Yeah, elves. Yeah, stars. Yeah, trees. Okay. And the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. Um, as Mike says, the last thing they appreciate is the passing of time. Um, and that is something that they don't share with the elves. That is, they have a different relationship with the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I think that, that that reference to the passing of time, I think, you know, suggests and brings up to us this, you know, the mortality and immortality um, questions um, between them and the elves. Last thing I want to look at is more poetry. Bilbo's final song, and it's the last song we hear Bilbo sing before they set out. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. But all the while I sit and think of times that were before. I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. As a an expression, um, sort of an articulation of Bilbo's point of view, this is his sort of like it's not the very last that we see of him, but this is sort of the final snapshot in a sense. Um, you know, not counting him shivering there and saying good luck uh, as they leave, but this is sort of the last snapshot we get of Bilbo's life in Rivendell, of Bilbo's life in retirement. Um, what strikes you about this? Um, uh, Timothy recommends uh, Howard Shore's setting of this song. Uh, yeah, go on, go on. Yeah. Um, Dime says, I always felt this is a sad song, that it's a kind of farewell to life, a, you know, a good life, but a farewell to it. Um, yes, it's not exactly actively saying goodbye, but it is very and continually conscious of the fact that it is coming to an end. Um, it's saying goodbye, <laughs> I just thought of a funny parallel, which I don't think is really appropriate, but that won't stop me from making it. Um, Bilbo saying goodbye to life in the same way that Sam was saying goodbye to the beer bower in the cellar of Back End, right? Um, that is not just waving and saying goodbye, but, but sort of that last experience. Um, Sam had to go down for one last long pull from the beer barrel in the cellar before he left, right? And uh, this song is, in a sense, not in a very good, not in a very clear sense, but it, it, it in a sense, I think, works almost like that. Um, what we see him is 
not just remembering stuff, but really sort of tasting again the life that he has seen and connecting it seamlessly with life going on without him. I mean, one of the most poignant stanzas I think in this poem is, I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago. That, of course, is what you expect, right? Um, this is what, of course, very naturally, uh, you often find with, with old people, remembering you know, old friends and all of the people that they've known and the things that they've done. Um, but, of course, Bilbo is also thinking of people who will see a world that I shall never know. Um, he's also thinking of the people, not necessarily just people in the future, but people in the present who will outlive him. And the fact that, you know, the world is going to go on without them. And, and, and anyway, so that kind of continuity is clearly one of the things that he is focused on. Yeah, Mike, he is interested um, in not just his own death, but in mortality in general. Um, yes, there is good, as Liza says, an acceptance of mortality, uh, but with some sorrow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yes, um, good. Sarah says he's thinking of the future and the past, not just one or the other, absolutely. Um, he's wondering about life after his and his life before now. Yes, good, good. Yeah, I know you had said that just before I was saying that. Uh, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, obviously. Very good. Um, you're talking about the progression through the seasons and the progression through life. Um, yes, yes. Um, good. As Sharon says, he's still interested in life. He's not done yet. Uh, you know, he's ready in. He's ready to welcome in those who are still on the go. Yeah, that I listen for returning feet and voices at the door is both a recognition that his own active life is completed. You know, he's not going on any more long journeys except maybe one to the sea, of course. Um, but but that doesn't mean he's disengaged from it. That doesn't mean he's cut off from it. He's still a part of it, um, even if not an active part. Um, and uh, yeah, Sarah, I agree. Sarah really likes the second verse. With morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Um, yes, yes, all of the, they're, they're very, um, very sort of multi-sensory images of the experience of nature. Not just like, I'm thinking of beautiful things that I have seen in nature or whatever, but it's nature interacting with him. Like the, the, you know, the wind upon my hair um, as a culmination of those things that he describes from nature. Uh, it's replacing him within it, um, I think is really, is really, is really good. I think that's really, um, that's really cool. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, Mike says uh, he looks to the window before he sings, and the passage before tells us what he sees out that window. Uh, yeah, and then this song is sort of like that, right? That that is a good little cue, uh, contextual cue. Very well done, Mike. You're so good at that. Um, to uh, be looking at um, that sort of sets up the song, right? Because that that image is almost metaphorical, right? Of him looking out a window at what he sees. This song works kind of like that. It's him looking, it's him from a distance, him sitting like, like there's an, a barrier between, it's not a wall with a window in it, it's time, right? It's memory that lies between him and the things that he's seeing and recalling in this, uh, in this poem. Um, but it works, um, it works. I agree, both Sharon and Sarah at the same time are suggesting, you know, it's, it's not too, it's not really sad um, you know, that he's, he's accepting of it. Sharon says there's a time for everything. I agree. I don't think it's, this is not a depressing or a depressed song at all. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that there are people who could take it that way. 
Um, yeah, I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. There are a lot of people who look at that and say, well, that's really depressing. Um, no, I actually think that that says more about the reader than about the speaker. Um, that is, there are many people who make the assumption, kind of understandable assumption, make the assumption that a poem about death is depressing by definition. Right? Well, I mean, he's talking about his own death. That's, gosh, that's depressing, really morbid. No, it's not morbid. You can actually talk about death without being morbid. Um, just because most modern people don't doesn't mean that you can't. Uh, and and he is here. Um, so I agree. It's but there is, but there is sadness in it. I mean, there is there is loss, um, even if sort of just in the sense of distance. You know that he is, um, he's thinking about these. You know, it, there is satisfaction in his reflection on his life, on his present, on his past, on his future, on the future without him, um, and seeing the big picture and how he fits into it in all these ways. But um, but I mean, it is still. There is, there is, yeah, melancholy is a great word, Timothy. I, I totally agree. That's the word I would use there. Um, uh, yeah, but I agree. Melancholy is a very big difference between sadness and depression. Depression is certainly, the song is not depressing, and Bilbo is obviously not depressed. Um, uh, yeah, Sharon says, uh, he wanted to end his book, and he lived happily ever after till the end of his days. Uh, because he has let go of the ring, he may be welcoming that he may be able to die. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, what do you think living happily ever after to the end of your days looks like, right? That, this is living happily ever after to the end of your days. To be able to sit and sing this song when you are old, that's like my definition of living happily ever after to the end of his days. Um, so, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, uh, and, yes, uh, I think... Um, yeah, again, Mike focusing on the context. He says, uh, you know, he can't seem to convey his feelings of mortality to Frodo directly, so he sings them, and not directly to Frodo, but to the window. Um, the direct communication of the emotion is too much for Bilbo. Well, yeah, we get a hint of that before. Remember when Frodo tries, right? You know, when Frodo says, like, you know, I've never been able to thank you for, you know, for this and for all your past kindnesses. And Bilbo says, don't try, right? Don't try. He, he um, um, and tries to sort of diffuse the intensity of the emotion of that moment, um, you know, by slapping him on the back and then making a joke. Ow, you're too hard now to slap. Um, yeah, that, I think that we can see that, you know, there is a kind of, you know, there is... A great depth of emotion that Bilbo is feeling about life in general, about Frodo and his relationship with Frodo, because of course there are ways in which this song is a song to Frodo, and in some ways almost about Frodo too, um, or at least connected to Frodo. Um, at the very least, Frodo is a very significant audience to this poem, but again, he's, as Mike says, he's not just directing it to him, directing it at him. Um, yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, 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 excellent. Um, yeah, right, good. Ed, Ed says, uh, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door, is what Bilbo says Frodo can do for him. Yes, that's the part that's directed most clearly to Frodo, right? Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Very good. Well, I will, uh, I will, I will let things go at that. Um, for next time, of course, we get Moria and the Bridge of Casa Doom. Um, and uh, we didn't get it. The one thing that I would have wanted to talk about some today, which I, I think I will carry over to next time, which will fit well enough, is Karathras, the representation of the mountain Karathras in this um, portion of the Fellowship of the Ring is quite striking. Um, and I want to make sure we don't skim over that entirely. Um, so I'm going to start with Karathras and then we'll move on to Moria and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the Balrog, we'll talk a little bit about, um, about um, uh, the Bridge of Casa Doom, of course. Um, but uh, yes, Sharon, thank you for, yes, I did get to cover the point. That was the conversation I have always wanted to have in class and have never gotten to. I am so happy. Uh, thank you guys for, uh, for uh, being patient with me uh, and for, for indulging me in a fun poetic conversation tonight. Uh, so very good. Uh, thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys on Tuesday. And then, as I said last time, next week, I, we, we, let's, let's go ahead and do the Wednesday. So we'll plan on Tuesday, Wednesday uh, of next week. So we'll have the two nights back-to-back, -back, but uh, I, I hope you guys will, will be able to be all right with that. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night.